money, wealth, materialism, how we deal with our finances. These are touchy subjects, maybe even more difficult to talk about than politics or peace. And maybe that's because these issues meet us so close to home in the food that we eat, in the homes that we live in, in the cars that we drive, in the property that we invest in, in the resources that we do or don't share, and in the money that we do or don't save. It gets really concrete and really personal. And many of us would prefer not to talk about it, especially not at church. But we need to talk about it at church, we, especially at church, because perhaps more than anything in our culture, money and wealth take on a power of their own and claim to be a God worthy of our worship. This God tells us that financial success is the yardstick that measures our significance and our worth. This God tells us that only material things, only money, and only wealth can satisfy our deepest hungers. This God tells us that abundant possessions equals abundant life. And we too often believe what this very powerful God tells us, bombarded as we are by messages day in and day out, coming to us through the media, through advertising, and through the lives lived around us. Without strong conscious effort on our part and without strong support from our peers and probably a faith community, we are easily seduced into believing that more is better and that accumulating wealth and consuming more is what brings security and meaning and true satisfaction to our lives. Now, at the outset, I just want to say that this is not meant to be a wealth is bad sermon. In the words of Don Crable in his book, The Upside Down Kingdom, and I quote here, Jesus never says that material things, that money and wealth, are evil or sinful in and of themselves. But he does warn that they are dangerous. They quickly assume a demonic character which unseats the rule of God in our life. Unquote. And that, I think, right there is the crux of the issue. Who or what is Lord of our lives? When it comes to our personal finances and our property and our wealth, when it comes to our relationship with money, is Jesus our Lord? Now, I confess that I come here this morning not as one who has all the answers. I come as a fellow struggler. And I confess that I find myself struggling with this issue in new ways, perhaps in more intense ways, as our family enters into a new season of life. I simply hope that these reflections this morning might provide some ongoing opportunity for all of us to re-examine the commitments that shape our lives and to support each other as we seek to follow Jesus as our Lord. 
As I mentioned earlier, from Jesus' perspective, wealth is not evil or sinful in and of itself. Much depends on how it is acquired, how it is used, and at whose expense. And perhaps most important of all, how much do we love it? How attached are we to the pursuit of wealth? How attached are we to the things we acquire or dream of acquiring? And what space does that pursuit take up in our lives? Clearly, from a biblical perspective, there are dangers associated with wealth. 1 Timothy 6.10 puts it this way. The love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. And in their eagerness to be rich, some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pains. So why? Why exactly is wealth so potentially dangerous? And here you're going to hear my condensed version. First of all, wealth can bind us. We are bound to the things that we accumulate. It requires time, it requires energy to invest what we've earned, to, to store what we've accumulated, to maintain what we've built. It takes time and it takes energy to protect and to improve our investments. And if we're not careful, our lives become bound to the pursuit of these things and to anxiety about these things. Because the more we have, the more we've got to lose. And so we begin to worry that thieves or moths or rust or fire and storm or stock market crashes or declining housing markets could consume, I mean, could actually wipe out what we have worked so hard to gather around us. And in our security and in our anxiety, we tend to cling even more to the things that we do have. As the pursuit of wealth or the protection of our things becomes a focal point in our life, we are prone to experience another form of bondage, and that is the bondage of chronic discontent. Whatever I have, it's not quite enough. You know that new computer? It's outdated tomorrow. That new smartphone? Well, there's a newer, faster version coming out in a few months. That tandem bicycle? Well, it's 10 years old and it doesn't compare to the Cadillacs that our friends ride. There's always more out there to whet our appetite and to keep us hungry. Attachment to wealth not only binds us, it blinds us. We can become so wrapped up in the good life, that enjoying the comforts and pleasures that we've attained, or spending our time and energies maintaining what we've got, that we become insulated and isolated from the reality of so many people in this world. We don't see, we don't see the three billion plus people in this world. That's nearly half the world's population that live on less than $2.50 a day. 
We don't see the 25,000 children under the age of five who die each and every day due to poverty. This we don't see. And we don't see the ways in which our consumptive lifestyles may be connected to this suffering. In the meantime, we are also blinded to our need for God. When we always have everything we need, we forget that we need God. We forget where all the blessing, where all the goodness in our life comes from. Proverbs 30, verse 8, reminds us that, and here I'm paraphrasing, when our bellies are perpetually full, the temptation is very, very real to deny God and to say, Who is the Lord? I'm so grateful for my friends in my life, like Mama Amelia, the woman that I was talking about in the children's story this morning, who has shown me what it looks like to depend on God for daily sustenance, to depend on God each and every day for life itself. And at the same time, I am painfully aware that my own affluence stands in the way of that kind of deep trust. Perhaps the biggest danger associated with wealth is that it can so easily usurp God's place in our lives and become our Lord. Jesus, in Matthew 6, 24, reminds us that no one can serve two masters. For a slave will either hate the one and love the other or be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and wealth. Jesus knows more than anything else that wealth can and often does act like a God in our lives. A God that seeks our worship and our devotion, our life focus. So, how will we know if our wealth or if our attachment to it has taken the place in our lives that belongs to God alone? Jesus tells us in Matthew 6:21, where your treasure is, there is your heart. So maybe a good place to begin is to looking for where our treasure is hidden. And here are some questions, just some, some questions that may be helpful. Question number one. Where do I spend my time, my energy, and my money? How much of it is dedicated to the acquisition and protection of wealth? How much of it is dedicated to loving God and neighbor, recognizing that these two are not necessarily mutually exclusive? Second question, what do I worry about? Now, we generally worry most about the things that we're most afraid of losing, the things that we value the most. How deep is my attachment to my wealth? How intensely do I fear its loss? 
Our degree of fear can reveal a whole lot about what is most important to us. Third question. What guides my decision making? Do I primarily turn to economic considerations? Do I assume that it cannot be a wise decision unless it benefits me financially? Am I willing to compromise ethical standards for the sake of profit? Am I willing to value profit over people? So, what if after asking these questions, we discover that wealth, or at least the pursuit of security through the acquisition of wealth, has a strong hold on our lives, a stronger hold than we would like? Well, if that's the case, I'd say we're being honest. And there's something really good and important about being honest, about where we are. Because when we get to that place, we are finally ready to ask God to liberate us from this false God that binds us and blinds us. This liberation begins as we take the risk of trusting. In Matthew 6, we hear Jesus inviting us to trust in God for all that we need. The birds of the air, the lilies of the field are cared for by God, and so are we. We are also invited to trust that our worth is not measured by what we own or how much money that we have or by our status or by our privilege or by our educational background or by what we have accomplished. Our worth comes from being loved and valued by God, no matter who or no matter how we are. We're also invited to trust that God cares about us and for us, and that God sees and that God knows our deepest need, and that God will be there to meet us right where we are. As we practice trust, we're invited to engage in I think liberating practices. That's what I'm going to call them, liberating practices. And here are some that come to my mind. Liberating practice number one. Seek first God's kingdom. Reminding ourselves that the purpose of our lives is not to amass wealth. The purpose of our lives as followers of Jesus is to seek God's kingdom above all else to love our God with our heart, our soul, our mind, and our strength, and to love our neighbor as ourselves. We trust that as we follow this purpose, other aspects of our life will fall into place. What we truly need, what we truly need will be given to us. Liberating practice number two. Release. Release some of that wealth that we are holding on to. Share. It was hard to share chocolate chip cookies this morning. Practice generosity. It takes a lot of trust to loosen our grip on those things that we think we simply can't live without. But 
as we do, we will find, we will find that they loosen their grip on us. Liberating practice number three, practice contentment. Practice the word enough, as in God is enough. God's love, God's grace, God's provision is enough. In the words of our own Patricia Heyman, who has given me permission to quote her this morning, prayer is far better than Walmart. She's right. She's right. Liberating practice number four. Find people to support you on the journey. The desire for wealth is such a powerful and alluring force in our culture and in our lives that we can't resist it on our own. I'm pretty convinced of that, that we can't do it on our own. Certainly, certainly need, we need the help of God. And certainly... We need the help of each other to support us and to encourage us and to hold us accountable to the direction that we have committed ourselves to. We need partners along this journey to ask with us, not to point fingers at us, but to ask with us. Given the choices that we are making in our lives, who really is Lord of our lives? Is it Jesus? I am so grateful to have partners on this particular journey here at East Chestnut Street Mennonite Church. I know there are people here who are asking the same kind of questions that I am. That feels so good. And I am grateful that several of them have agreed to share about how the theme we've been exploring together weaves its way through their lives. So I'm going to thank you in advance, Elsie and Margaret, for your willingness to share with us here this morning. And Elsie, would you come forward and just share some of your reflections with us? <laughs> 